Hi, I'm Sean Perrin, and you're listening to episode 140 of the Clarinet Podcast, the show for clarinetists. On today's episode, we are joined by a very special guest, the Grammy Award-winning jazz clarinetist Eddie Daniels. We discuss his new album called Night Kisses, what it was like studying with Daniel Bernard and Joe Allard way back in the 50s when New York was a totally different place, why Eddie thinks articulation is one of the most important elements of clarinet playing, why jazz will make you free as a player, and why leaving space in music is actually the hardest part. Of course, as usual, if you're new around here, we also discuss many other things, ranging from a few funny personal questions I had for Eddie, including whether or not he actually played trombone on an album, and it turns out that he did. So stay around all the way to the end to hear that really unique and interesting story, which I actually was expecting him to say was not true, but it turned out that it was. So thank you so much to our 68 Patreon backers for helping support the show and make it possible, and also to our season sponsors. Take your playing to the next level with Bakun Musical Services. With 14-day trials, free shipping on eligible orders, and expert advice, you can be sure you're making the best choice for your musical needs. For Canadian customers, be sure to check out the new store that allows you to pay with Canadian dollars. And for everyone listening, you can use code CLARENEAT at checkout for 10% off your purchase. And yes, this includes everything from barrels and bells all the way to custom clarinets. Again, use code CLARENEAT at checkout at www.bakunmusical.com. Imagine a reed that offers complex performance and sound, but is washable, recyclable, consistent, doesn't require moistening, and lasts for months instead of days. It's all possible with Leger Reeds, the world's leading synthetic reed brand, made right here in Canada. Leger Reeds are used exclusively by some of the world's greatest clarinetists, including Eddie Daniels, who is of course the guest of today's episode, Corrado Giuffredi, David Schifrin, and many others. And now, it's your turn. Experience Legere Reads at your local music store, or by heading to Legere.com. That's L-E-G-E-R-E.com. Just a quick side note, they're also announcing just today, actually, the new bass clarinet European signature read, so you'll have to check that out on their website as well. And last but not least, we have Encoda, and it's a new app that lets you stream, practice, and perform tens of thousands of music scores. You can get a free trial today at Encoda.com. That's N-K-O-D-A. So I'm here today with the wonderful Eddie Daniels. Eddie, thank you so much for coming on the Clarinet Podcast. My pleasure. I want to get as many people to play the clarinet as possible. <laughs> that sounds like an excellent goal. And you know what? I'm sure you have uh, been one of the people to contribute very much to that over your entire career, really, with your wonderful, wonderful jazz history. You know, I want to say, too, you're the first, I think, guest to have won a Grammy Award and who's been several times nominated for the Grammy Award on the podcast here. So first of all, congratulations, but also it's a uh, milestone for all listening as well. So speaking of Grammy-nominated uh, projects, you've got many great albums out, including your last one, which was nominated for a Grammy, but you also just had an album released, I believe it was about two weeks ago. So let's start off today by talking a little bit about that, if you could tell me about the project and some of the music on there and what your hopes for it are. Okay, well, the name of the album is Night Kisses. It's the music of Ivan Lenz, one of the great, great, great Brazilian composers. It features myself and Dave Grusin and Bob James and the Harlem String Quartet and great Brazilian percussionist Mauricio Zotarelli and uh, Josh Nelson on piano on most of the other tunes and arranging and Kuno Schmidt from Germany uh, arranged a lot of it. Dave Grusin and Bob James both did two arrangements, and there were 13 tunes on the album. So I'm quite pleased with it, and 
It was really, really, really interesting. It was like an assignment. You know, your teacher says, learn etude from the Rose etudes, uh, number three and four. Well, uh, George Clavin said, learn these 13 tunes of Yvonne Lenz. And basically, I didn't learn them. I kind of just listened to Yvonne singing because his singing is so amazing and so heartfelt that, you know, that I wanted to see if uh, could I enter into that without getting in the way, you know? Basically, it's my album. It's Eddie Daniels plays the music of Yvonne Lenz. But I, uh, I don't want to get in the way of the beautiful expression that he gave on these original tunes, which hardly anybody has recorded these 13 tunes. In fact, Yvonne wrote us a note. He was ecstatic about the album and felt that it was one of the best productions and one of the best albums of his music. He was really, really touched. And uh, that made me feel like I was successful. Now let's talk about the clarinet, since this is about the clarinet, right? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> so I had a problem with the clarinet a month before the gig. It was last June, and it was a month before that in May. I went to the dentist. Uh, he did a bone graft on my back tooth on the upper left, all the way at the end, which connects with the sinus. And he said to me, you cannot play the clarinet for three weeks. This was leading up to the fourth week as the, the session, right? And, uh, you know, I played a lot of clarinet in my life. Uh, I didn't want to not practice, but my buddy Ron Odridge, who's also a great clarinet player, and he's written things for the Clarinet Magazine. He's also a periodontist. He said, why don't you just practice your flute for a couple of weeks, and then when you get to the session, your clarinet fingers will be fine. You know, you'll, you'll be greased up. So uh, I did that because I didn't want to sit around on my hands and do nothing. I could not blow the clarinet. I tried it once and I heard a noise from the back of my nose, which meant air was getting into the sinus in the blown graft and it could have blown out that bone graft. So that, I went to the density, said, do not touch that clarinet and spoke to Ron about it. And he said, yeah, play the flute. And so I started playing the flute and fell in love with the flute. And since there was 13 tunes for the album, by the time I got to the session, and it's really tricky because I really wanted to be true to the music, right? And I was a flute player 30 years ago, you know, studied with Julie Baker, Tom Nightfinger, all the best players, you know. So I was a good flute player. I hadn't really lost it totally, but, you know, I didn't really have the refinement, you know, I'd, with the flute, I'd pick it up and play it and then put it down and then practice the clarinet, of course. But I started playing the flute and it started coming back, at least in that three week period back so that when I got to the session, we had these 13 tunes and I asked myself, well, this tune is perfect for clarinet. What about this other one? It's Latin music, you know, it's got a groove to it. It's Brazilian music. And there were four tunes, since there were 13 tunes altogether, I felt like the flute fit on certain tunes really even better than the clarinet would for Brazilian music, you know. So I did basically four tunes on, on each instrument, four on flute, four on saxophone, and four on clarinet. And uh, it was a lesson to me, you know. Uh, well, the clarinet was very comfortable in my hands. I think this is one of the best albums I've ever done. On all the instruments, the clarinet really worked beautifully. I had just switched over to Legere reeds at the time, and I used Legere on some of the tunes. It sounds great. I loved it. And so the flute worked out. I found tunes that were just right for the flute, and the tenor saxophone is part of my cadre of 
instruments that I played all my life, never stopped playing it. Got a, a really a very rich album with rich colors. I mean, so many times people would say, boy, that clarinet sounds so fluty. It sounds so beautiful in the high register, you know? So it's funny, On the, the reviews are coming out. One of the reviewers said, boy, that flute sounds really good. But I was on the clarinet on that song. <laughs> <laughs> and they thought it was a flute. So uh, anyway, it's all fun. And, you know, the flute teaches you something about the clarinet. Well, number one, it taught me that the amount of pressure in your mouth when you're playing the flute is so much less because the flute's not in your mouth, it's outside of your mouth, and you're just kind of breathing into it. The clarinet's in your mouth, and there is a resistance to the setup, almost always. You know, if there's no resistance, it'll sound like a toy, it'll sound like a kazoo. So I, I really learned the difference between, wow, the clarinet has a certain pressure that builds up in your mouth that you don't notice because you're playing it all the time. And suddenly when I couldn't play it and I had to find another way, the flute was the other way. And I realized the dentist was fine with it. My buddy Ron was fine with it. It didn't at all create a pressure in the mouth that could hurt, you know, the bone graft. Do you think that this sort of situation, did you find it stressful going into the recording, knowing this was all going on? Like, what if you didn't heal in time or any of this? Or was there a way out if you needed? That's a great question. You know. After three weeks, the dentist said, you can play now. So I had a week that I could prepare the clarinet. But because I had been practicing the flute and, you know, my attention and connection to notes was there. I was still working on being a woodwind player so that when I picked up the clarinet, it felt very comfortable to me. It felt as good as it ever had because I had been practicing music. You know, I was a little nervous, but I, I had a week to get it together. But then, you know, I have to bear in mind, I've been playing the clarinet since I'm like 11, playing music since I'm nine. I started on the alto sax at nine. So, you know, it's like, you know, a good 60 some odd years of playing the clarinet. And that's what the lesson is, that when you practice and you finally get what you're working on, it's in your body. You know, it's in you. Even though you're afraid, it may not work. You still got to practice. You still got to warm up. You still got to get your articulation and get your stuff together and warmed and ready to play, which I had some time in L.A. to do that. I would, you know, had a nice little apartment nearby. I could warm up, practice, go down in the studio and, and get myself together. You know, it's still when you put in time. That's the thing. When you put in time, real time. And as, uh, I forgot the name of that book, that says a really, really good player needs to put in at least 10,000 hours on an instrument. 10,000. The outliers. Oh, Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You know, and he went to a university where he listened to three groups of violinists who were all great players. But there were groups of like the top, top, top ones and there was the middle ones, and then there were the ones that were just pretty good. And so in talking to all those three groups, he found out that the ones that were the top talents practiced the most. So that means a couple of things. It means that the more time you put in, even if you're the tops, they did not take that for granted. That gave them incentive to really go for it. Or there's also a fear. You know, when, you're, when you have that kind of talent, 
uh, there's a sensitivity, a human sensitivity of, gee, I want this to be so right. Maybe I'm nervous about a performance. So the top players really practice the most. I was one of the guys that practiced the most. Most of my friends would say Eddie's a practicer. And why am I a practicer? Because I love it. I love practicing. Because when you practice, you're focusing. And the people who really practice well, it's not necessarily about repeating something a hundred times. It's like, how focused are you on that little piece that you're screwing up or want to be better? How focused are you on that? In other words, you're not thinking about lunchtime and I got a date tonight and we'll go out. You know, you're really there. The ones who are the most talented, maybe I might say they're also the most sensitive emotionally because they want it so badly. They need it. So there's nervousness, there's stress, you know, there's emotional sensitivity. The top performers at that university, at that conservatory, had played 10,000 hours to get to where they were. The middle ones were half as much, and the pretty talented ones were much less. And they were basically saying you need that before you'll reach a certain level on, on basically anything. And I think it translates to, what, four hours a day times 10 years or something like that? But that's a lot of time. It is a lot of time. But what else do we have to do? You know, well, especially when you're a young person, you're in school. I was in Juilliard. I was in the High School of Performing Arts. And I had good teachers. I studied with Bonad when I was uh, 12 years old. You know, God, when I hear myself say that, Daniel Bonad, one of the great teachers and players of all time for the clarinet. And so he was my teacher. I had parents that were willing to pay for lessons, got lucky, and made me practice in front of a master. And, uh, and Jimmy Abada was a master. Joe Allard was another one of my teachers. Do you have a story maybe about studying with Bernard and Joe Allard that you could share? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Joe is a super, super favorite of mine because he, he became like your daddy. You know, he was like one of these warm, very special guys. Bonad was French and his English was OK. And there would be in the room. It was actually uh, Joe Allard's studio up on uh, across from Radio City Music Hall in this Wayland drugstore up above with them, his studio. So Bonad was using Joe's studio. I, obviously, they were friends. And I hadn't gotten to Joe yet, but I was at Bonad because Jimmy Abato said, it's time for you to go to Bonad. And Bonad was his teacher. And so Bonad was great. I love, you know, he'd pick it up and he'd play 3,000 notes so quickly. And he said, it's nothing. <laughs> like, like, oh, that was just so easy, you know. And I mean, he was an older guy. It was not like the most gorgeous sound in the world because he was 75 or 80 years old at the time. But it was great because it also made me nervous because he was also at the same time teaching all the Juilliard students who were studying with Bonad from Juilliard. But they would take the lessons at this studio. So before I'd go in, I'd hear a Juilliard student, really good players, playing the poop out of the clarinet. And then I'd go in. And But here's one of the funny stories. You know, Bonad had his own mouthpiece, which was a Leylande with his name on it, faced for him, it's called the, the Bonad clarinet mouthpiece. Might have said D Bonad on it, or it's Bonad. 
And it had a good sound inherently, but it was not, not an easy mouthpiece to play. You know, you'd have to go to Matson or one of the great refacing guys to make that mouthpiece play better. And it was a very, very good blank, you know, so that's what guys did. But I didn't know about that at the time. And a lot of the students at Juilliard didn't know about that at the time. It was a little early for them to get to know Matson, who did refacing. So I would look in their cases. Their cases open, right? I'm hearing this very good player in the next room play for Bonad. And in his case, he had like a Selmer mouthpiece, which is the one he really used. But for his lesson, he played on the Bonad mouthpiece. I thought that was kind of a cute story, but he still was able to play it. I mean, these guys were really, really good players, much better than I was. I was, you know, 12, 13 years old in high, just starting high school. These were, you know, a Juilliard students who really could play great. And so it was just funny to listen. And Bonad didn't know that there. Selmer, it was a B star. Those were the ones that a lot of the students of Bonad were playing unbeknownst to Bonad. You know, that's the funny story. You know, uh, I'm the little kid waiting and there are the, all these good players around me. But my first lesson with Bonad, I was about 11 and a half or maybe, you know, and that he was teaching up above Manny's Music Store on 48th Street in this old, old building. And to get up, I was scared. You know, I took the train in from Brighton Beach in Brooklyn and uh, had a lesson with Daniel Bonad. This is the first lesson. Before he had Joe's music studio in the Whalen Drugstore place, he had this studio above Manny's. And so you had to walk up this creaky, dusty, dark staircase that had no landing other than the very bottom and the very top. And it was like on the third floor, you know? You walked and you walked and you walked and I got up to the top of the room and I get into this dark room and Bonad uh, greets me. And uh, the music stand wasn't high enough for people to read off of it. So he had the music stand sitting on a wooden chair. So that would make the music stand higher. So here you have one of the, the great players of all time, Daniel Bonad, has his own mouthpiece, has taught everybody in Juilliard and everywhere that the music stand was like a funky old music stand that was sitting on top of a chair so it could be high enough for you, you know? And just the darkness and the dreariness of that room. But he changed my life in that one lesson. At the time, I was not tonguing the reed with my tongue. I was tonguing my lip, which was against the reed with my tongue. And for some reason, even having studied with Abato and a lot of uh, some other pretty good local teachers, nobody noticed because I had a good ear and I can sound pretty good. Bonad immediately said, you're not tonguing the reed with your tongue. Put your tongue on the reed. So out of that funky building with dust and dark and a stand on a chair and this old guy giving me a lesson, he immediately found my Achilles heel. And so on the way home on the train, <laughs> on the Brighton Express, I have the mouthpiece in my mouth and I'm trying to get the feeling of what it's like to get comfortable with a reed on your tongue. Because I was used to touching my lip and the touching of the reed with the tongue was strange to me. That's such a testament to your ear, even at a young age, you know? Yeah, absolutely. But it's also, it made much more resonance when you're tonguing the reed with your tongue rather than your <laughs> lip, rather than no, 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 no. You're going ta, 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 right at the tip of the reed. So, I mean, I am so thankful for Bonad to actually 
look at that and hear it and know it. I played in front of a lot of good people. Nobody noticed it. So I, I bowed down to Bernard for just that greatness of giving me that. And then he moved over to Joe Allard's studio on, I think it was, it's probably 51st Street and 6th Avenue with, uh, across from Radio City Musical. And so, uh, yeah, that's a funny story about Bonad. What else do you want to know? I love that. Did you ever get the chance to ask him what the giveaway was for the read on the tongue or not on the tongue? He could hear the sound. It wasn't as clear. You know, he's focusing in on that. So he was a very good teacher in that way. And Jimmy Abata was a monster player, pretty good teacher. You know, he scared the hell out of me uh, playing for him because he's a great virtuoso clarinet player. Played much better than Bonat played at that time because Jimmy was, uh, you know, 45 years old at that time. And I was a kid. So Jimmy could tongue, unbelievable tongue, single tongue, almost as fast as Ricardo Morales, you know, or in that league, as fast as Ricardo. Amazing single tongue. Eventually, I got to have a pretty good articulation. And I'm saying this to all of the clarinetists who listen. Articulation, I would say, aside from tone, is the most important thing. I'd say, of course, sound comes first, which is the first thing you make a noise, right? But articulating that sound in a melody. Uh, and when I say articulating, I'm not specifically meaning you got to go, da, 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 you know, fast single tongue. Just beginning a note at the beginning of a first note of something. You walk on, out on stage and you, to play the Mozart, you got to stand up there for, you know, almost 10 minutes before you come, come in. Well, I think it's the hardest part to develop, too. Like, it's not a light switch. So many people treat their tongue like an on and off, you know, but there's got to be a lot of finesse with it. Absolutely. You know, the thing I learned about Joe, which was great for the, in terms of the tongue, Joe Allard was high tongue, keeping the tongue very high in the E position, which was Marsalis used to teach his students the same thing, but Joe's taught it slightly differently about how wide the tongue had to be and the more uh, like this French, anyway, Joe was just also one of the great teachers who would take out his Gray's Anatomy book and describe why your tongue should do this. And he'd show the muscle of the tongue and all. A good teacher is also a great entertainer. So I'm assuming back then, like with Bernard, you've got to be studying classical. At what point did you kind of switch to more jazz? Well, that's separate. You know, I always did jazz separately. I would not play jazz for Bonad. But I even have my rose etudes in front of me now that when I was studying with Bonad, the rose 40 with the very first. I still practice that once in a while, not every day. But that etude, having the legato fingers that Bonad taught, very smooth. It's not like keeping your fingers close and pressing like a typewriter. It's having a certain kind of flow in your fingers. You're actually lifting them up like an, almost like a silk scarf coming down on the keys. You know, I felt like that was one of the things that Larry Guy wrote a book on Bonad, and I mentioned in that book, and he talks about the Bonad legato but everybody who studied with Bonan talks about it differently. I think I really got it. That's me as an ego know-it-all right now, <laughs> which I'm not really. But I thought I got it from Bonan. And some other people, the way they talk about it, 
is a little different. And they might have gotten some other thing out of the same presentation. You never know. But I love that in this Rose 40, I have Bonad's writing. It's 1956. I'm taking lessons with Bonad. And in the front page of the book is his drawing this kind of a sine curve for, you know, rounded up and rounded down, which is how he wanted the legato to be, like a round hill that came down, as opposed to a jagged peak and then straight down like a mountain, you know. And uh, so I have that writing in my book here. I show it to students when they come so they could get a little bit out of that. Man, you should create like a YouTube video or even just scan that as a PDF so people can you know, see it and you can talk about what's in there. I bet a lot of clarinetists would love to have a peek in that book and talk to you about it. That's for sure. Yeah. Be amazing. So I got into jazz when I was 13. I had a, I had a band. I had a guy played accordion, Danny Diamond, very good player. And I recently talked to him. He became a psychiatrist and he still plays jazz in the accordion and the piano. And so I had a band with him and a drummer named Ron Olson. And I was 12 and we started playing little affairs, little gigs and stuff. I had a LeBlanc uh, symphony model at that point. And I just, you know, got out and played with other people. I did have a classical pianist to play with. And I, I remember, you know, at that stage, I was playing the concertino, the Weber concertino, with a woman who now moved to Santa Fe, who lives right near me. She doesn't play the piano anymore, but she's here with her husband. So it's kind of interesting how a lot of things kind of fall back in your life. So I did play classical then when I studied with Bonad, and I, I played at the concerto concert for the performing arts, which was at uh, a town hall. I played with the concerto orchestra, you know, I played the Mozart. And other people played, it was a cello soloist, Richard Amster was a soloist on cello, and that was our yearly concerto concert that I studied a little bit of the Mozart with Bonad, but... Jazz was like a separate thing that I had my guys I'm playing with, and it just kind of opened me up. All of you who are classical clarinetists would love to be free, right? Being free is something that jazz has the ability to help you with because you're not reading all the notes on the page. And there's so many very fine classical players who know nothing of improvisation. And all they're doing is making a nice melody and following the line of the melody. But they don't really know what the harmony is underneath it. Some of them, not everyone, you know, know what that harmony is below the note that you're playing. So in other words, it's funny. The first bar of the Mozart, that's the one chord Then. Ba -da 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 is the five chord. And then it goes da -da 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 -da, back to one to five. So you, you kind of figure out that the beginning of the Mozart is like one, five, one, you know, and you know that. And so when you land on a note, whatever the harmony is, and you know the harmony, you have a sensitivity to the harmony. The way you play that note is going to be very special. It's going to be different. In other words, Let's say the harmony is C major, right? And you have an F that goes to an E. A lot of people might play that F and feel the dissonance of it and get off it quicker because it's the fourth going to the third. 
And another player who knows it's a one chord would handle that F and maybe enjoy the dissonance of it, knowing that. Yeah, provides the tension for that moment. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I think, too, I mean, I have limited knowledge of jazz and it almost it saddens me now that I'm later in my career. I do wish that I had done more with it. But when I was learning about improvisation, I was after university and I actually noticed that my stage anxiety went away a fair bit because I sort of realized that you're only ever really a semitone away from sort of a right note and you can noodle your way back into something if you get out of it. And I was like, man, if, if I make a mistake on stage, it's, it's not as important now because I know what's going on. <laughs> and they don't know the music. Yeah, well, before it was like if you play one wrong note, it's like a train getting derailed. That's right. I remember playing the Copeland at one point at one of the clarinet fests in Italy, actually. And, and that's online. You could find Eddie Daniels plays Copeland in Italy. You know, so I got all these clarinetists that are looking at the music to the Copeland while I'm playing it. Which is why I added the blues to the middle of the cadenza. And I improvise on it. You can find that online on YouTube. Betty Daniels plays Copeland in Italy. So it's different. At least when you're playing jazz, nobody's got the score. And you could play a wrong note. Nobody knows. So you were right to feel better. Who gave you that little line that you're only a half a step away from a right note? I don't know. But it's, it's true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, somebody told that to me, and I use that same expression. You can't play a wrong note because you're always next door to the right note. But it's life-changing. And I have this app, too, when I was first learning this. It, it actually blew my mind because I, again, had no experience with it at all. And I always had a lot of negative anxiety about, like, wrong notes and things. And, and uh, I took some lessons with a few different musicians of different instruments, actually. And one of them was a bass guitar player. And he just had me put on some backing track and just jam with a blues scale. And he's like, look, if you play these notes... It'll always sound good. You just have to figure out which direction you want to make it go in. I like that. That's great. That's a good lesson. You give that one pentatonic scale and it, you could play that over anything. But I've been told that unless it was written down by some genius, I can't play it. <laughs> <laughs> well, so that's why jazz always attracted me. The freedom of it. The self-expression of it. And that's one of the things about the new album, the Night Kisses album. The melodies are so beautiful that you sink into the sound and the beauty of it. And I, I didn't play a lot of notes on this album because the melodies are so gorgeous. I did improvise a lot, but I wasn't programmed in my heart to like play fast. I didn't want to do that. The music is so beautiful. I mean, there's movement, plenty of movement all over the place, but I'm not like trying to be brilliant. Are you experiencing that in general at this point in your career? I mean, everyone from Glenn Gould to Stanley Drucker to many amazing musicians have seem to have said in their later years that they wish they'd slowed down more instead of trying to be so flashy. Are you finding that's the truth? Yeah, I've slowed down and I'm also a meditator. So slowing down your breath and observing it and, you know, watching yourself and being observant will slow you down. And so I've had moments through the years where I'm slowed down and then I'm not slowed down, you know, uh, a lot of records, I can listen to them now, you know, solos I put on other people's records when I was just a guest. It's almost like I was able to kind of find the moment then and not overly play. And then there are moments where I hear some of my early Thad Jones, Mel Lewis recordings with that band where I'm almost over the top, you know. So what are you going to do? You are what you are at a certain point. I think it only took me, uh, 
you know, 78 years to get to this place where I like holding <laughs> notes. Here's the key, and I'll give it to all of you clarinetists, that if you love your sound and you're in love with sound and you like your instrument and your tone is something you like, you're going to play slower and love the sound. But if you have a very easy mouthpiece that just plays loud and it's buzzy and it's kind of bright, you're going to play faster because you don't want to spend time with your sound. Well, that's the other thing that blows my mind when I was taking the jazz lessons. I'd love your thoughts on it too, actually, is someone told me that the best players leave space. And I was like, listening to music after that. And I was like, holy, that's so true. You know, the more space there is sometimes, the more interest, the, the longer they hold that note and swell with it. And yeah. Absolutely. Well, it's, it's like the pause between somebody saying to his fiance, will you marry me? And the woman usually has to go, yes, like right away. There is that pause, that wonderful pause where she's thinking and because it's an important moment. So I look at music that way. Every note is an important moment. Yeah, yeah. And in a way, the tension is between the notes, too. So why did you stop playing jazz? Oh, I'm still playing a little bit here and there. But I, I wanted to get into it specifically because I was doing a, a cover album of some Chick Corea tunes. And they were the children's songs. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. But it's all piano. But I was playing them with a friend of mine at the time who was on marimba. And we, we transcribed them, um, or I transcribed them, I guess, for marimba and clarinet. And it was just a really fun thing to do. But there was some sections in there where I noticed that when, you know, Chick Corea was playing live, the three minute version on the album would turn into like eight minutes. And I was like, yeah, it'd be kind of fun to do my own improvisations too, like this a little bit. But I had no experience with it. And so it was a real eye opening thing. And you're right. It was very freeing to kind of get into that. And I think the best thing I did, too, was to actually talk to different instrumentalists like a saxophone player and a drummer and a bass guitar player. And we had a keyboardist come over and a bass player. And each of them had such a different perspective, but all were kind of saying the same thing. And, and I think at the end of the day, it was just like, you got to use your ear and know the scale. <laughs> Absolutely. And I would say to beginning jazz players, young players, don't worry about the space. But you do have to know how to play the harmony. So, you know, I think being busy filling up those bars with some good notes in the harmony and learning how to swing, which is the other part of this, you know, how you swing with the time. If you're not really an accomplished player having space, I don't think it's that meaningful. If you're not that accomplished, you've got to learn your notes, learn your chops, learn your articulation. Very, very important. And then once you have it, you can let it go. That's so interesting that, that not playing is actually the hardest part. <laughs> That's right. Well, well, it's like a good lawyer. I think of a good lawyer presenting a case. They're not going to try to bowl you over with thousands of things. It's always like, how do you make your point? Yeah, yeah. So speaking of making your point, how would you advise to create like the, the best jazz music or the best solos, or the best improvisation? Like when you're listening to, for example, these pieces you were told to practice or learn, what went into your head as far as like this album and all your work, really? Like, where do you start? What do you, what do you think about? I didn't really practice them because I didn't want to be too prepared. And I wasn't because I wasn't playing the clarinet. It's kind of interesting. For this album, I listened to Yvonne's version of these songs. And then I listened to the files that they sent me of the arrangements of these songs. But I didn't try to play along with them and really try to swing and play good solos. I kind of liked falling into it when I don't know what's going to happen and being a little bit unsure. But because I have been practicing for 
hundreds of thousands of hours and I have the chops and I also play piano. I can play chords and I can play songs at the piano. Uh, that there's a lot in me that I can trust will work. In other words, you're not going from nothingness. You know, if a baby only learns mama, it knows how to say mama. Then it learns dada. So then it's got two words that it knows. So a good player has thousands of words and notes and combinations of notes. So then I can go in the studio and let go and not be overly concerned. So for those musicians maybe looking to open up their freedom starting today from square one as a classical player, what, what would you say the first thing to do is? Wherever you want to start is fine because you can't help but get better at it. So I wouldn't say there's one thing you have to do because we're talking to a lot of people on different levels. Maybe just playing along with the records. I used to do that as a kid. I'd pick up my horn and play along with it. That gives you a certain security where you're just, you learn how to listen and go with it. Well, it expands your ear like nothing else, too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So you're playing along. No one's listening to you, so you don't have to get too scared. You're doing it by yourself in your own room, and you're playing along with the record. You know, the Jamie Abersall records are great because they have just accompaniment on one side of them, and you can play along. But you do have to know your chords. But, you know, you might have such a good ear that we don't know. You might be a genius. So I would say try everything. The, all the clarinetists that are listening, you've been improvising all your life on the clarinet. You know when? When you put the clarinet in your mouth and on an open G, you go, da, 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 da. Everybody does that, right? That's an improvisation. You're not worried about not sounding good. You know what the G is going to sound like. You just want the articulation to sound good. But that, you pick it up and it's, you're improvising. Well, and for those listening too, let's advise on where you can pick up this new album. I think it's on your Bandcamp page. I'm just trying to pull up the link here, but I will put a link in the show notes to this episode as well. Um, is it available on your website, eddydanielsclarinet.net? You can get it on Amazon. You know, Eddie Daniels, uh, it's Resonance Records, Resonance, R-E-S-O-N-A-N-C-E. You can get it off their website, but you can get it on Amazon in a second. You could download it or you could buy the whole CD for 15 bucks or something like that. I think it's one of my best albums because there's a lot of space. I love the sound of the clarinet. I mean, I'm always going to be better. I'm always going to be working on things. I never get to a place where I think I've arrived and I don't have to do it anymore because I love it. I love practicing. I love that. Even at your point in your career. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. I'll at least, before I leave the planet, have another 10,000 hours. How do you like that, guys? That's amazing. So <laughs> <laughs> we all got to get practicing because Eddie Daniels is already a million hours ahead. And he's still going to push more, guys. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. So I had a couple off-topic questions. I just had to get off my chest. The first one is, I had a friend one time tell me that years ago you'd recorded an album with, with trombone. Is that true? Yeah, it's true. It's true. Okay. So what's the album called? I want to check it out. I don't know the album, but it was with the La Playa Sextet. That is so funny. I love it. Or Eddie Palmieri's band. But, you know, I'm not a soloist on it. One summer, when I was about 20... I went to uh, Lake Tarleton Club in New Hampshire with a band, a great band of guys. We used to jam every night after the show. And Barry Rogers played trombone in that band. And he was the leading trombonist on all the Latin records at the time with Eddie Palmieri and other people. So we had so much time to spend during the day that he gave me trombone lessons and I gave him sax lessons. 
I took to it right away in a certain raw way. I got a trombone. I bought a trombone. I bought a 6C mouthpiece or 7C Bach mouthpiece and started playing it and falling in love with it. And I was pretty good. And then that was July. And he said to me in September, I have this gig in Puerto Rico, man, and I can't go. Will you do it for me on trombone? That's amazing. Did you hear that silence? I like that silence that happened after I said that. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yeah. So I did it. I did the gig. I played trombone in Puerto Rico with the La Playa Sextet. And I had an amazing time. You know, Puerto Rico was alive at that point. It was such a beautiful place and so great. Kind of just goes to show you whatever instrument you decide to pick up and you focus on, you'll be good at. After a while, after about two years after that, and I had played the trombone, in two bands for two summers up in the Catskills, one at the Homowack Lodge and one at another place in Swan Lake where I played trombone the whole summer because I didn't want to ruin my clarinet or saxophone playing by playing this commercial music so I could play it on a trombone. And then I'm learning the trombone and having fun. So that's what I did for two summers, played the trombone. And I, during those years, I was going out doing a couple of weddings and stuff. But then I realized I needed to play the instrument that's part of my original idea, sax, clarinet, and flute at that time. So I went back to the clarinet, basically what I did. I figured it's more important that I really, really be good at something than to be pretty good at the trombone, pretty good on the clarinet. I wanted to put those 10,000 hours from the trombone and put it on the clarinet. So I decided not to do 10,000 hours on the trombone. What you just said is genius. And actually, for those listening, check out the episode with Stephen P. Brown that came out recently, too, because he talked a lot about how this whole portfolio career idea might not actually be the best way. You want to kind of focus in on, on what it is you want to do. And so that, I think that was a very good insight that you had. Yeah, the most important thing is pick your spot, pick what you're playing, what instrument you love, and make that your voice. You know, at this age, you know, I made my cl the clarinet my voice for 50, 60 years. And the saxophone along with it, I dragged it along. And uh, lately I'm practicing the flute as my added voice again, since it sounded so good on the record, I think everybody will enjoy it. And you'll hear, you know, that I'm, just getting back to the flute, but it's pretty good. It's pretty darn good. It fit the moment. Have you still got that trombone? Uh, no, I sold it. <laughs> <laughs> but I can still buzz my lips. <laughs> well, maybe we'll see a revival of the trombone now. Who knows? <laughs> no, no. I, th I think the flute is just, you know, it's easier. It takes less air, and I'm loving playing the, the repertoire. And I'm playing the clarinet every day, too, loving it. Just loving it. Loving it all. If you have to be quarantined, be glad you have your instruments because then you can practice. Absolutely. And I was going to ask, too, I hear you have a big kind of closet where you keep all your old instruments and stuff like that. Who told you that, Lars? Joel Jaffe. Joel Jaffe, right. He says you got tons of great stuff in there. Yeah, I do. I do. Do you ever just go through and kind of reminisce about the old equipment or anything like that? Any stories about it? You know, before I made this move out to live here, I was playing all my saxes and clarinet, flute, piccolo, bass, clarinet, bass, flute, all of that stuff. But uh, when I moved here, I sold them all. I sold all the saxes. I sold everything but the clarinet. I eventually sold all the flutes. So I only wanted to do clarinets. I was committed. 
And then after a while, as I slowly got back into the saxophone, I now have five tenors in my closet. <laughs> you know? And now I've got, you know, four flutes or three flutes on my stand and many clarinets. And I hoard a little bit like that. But we're all like that. You want to find the best instrument, you know, to play. And then they get into your closet, you know. But I find the best play the one you're playing right now, the one you love and just play that mouthpiece, play that horn. No matter what I have in the closet, once in a while I'll put out a drawer full of mouthpieces and I have a lot of them, Caspers and, you know, mouthpieces that when I first met Richard Hawkins, he was not a famous mouthpiece maker, but he would work on my Caspers when I first met him years ago. And so, you know, always the eternal search for the sound, for the way to play it, the best instrument. I've been very lucky in that regard. I love that. And I hear you're also a fan of cars. Do you have a... Like, what do you drive? What do you drive? Well, I am a car person. I love good cars. I had a Porsche for a while. I bought new here and it got a great deal on it. So I drove that for about five years. And then uh, I realized, God, as you get older, it's hard to get down into that car. So I got (laughs) myself the Audi S4, which is even faster than the Porsche was. It's an amazing car. Is that the two-door, like supercharged or something? What is that one? It's a four-door. I leased an S4 before this, and it was supercharged. So it's like turbo on steroids, you know? And this, it's two turbos, it's very fast. You know, when I'm in a light and I have to hammer it, I can do it. But now that I have all that speed, it's kind of like my clarinet playing. I don't need to go fast. I just know that I can. Oh, I like that, I like that. That's my ending line for this. Yeah, get that on a (laughs) t-shirt. I don't have to play fast now because I know that I can. But it may take, you know, 20 years for you to know that you can. And then you learn to play slow and love it more. I will write that down. And everyone listening, jot that down. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, Sean, this has been great. I loved it. It was a lot of fun. You're good. You're a good interviewer. Well, and let's do it again sometime and hopefully in person sometime when we can actually you know, go back to humanity here and <laughs> maybe have a clarinet fest or something again. And I might let you in my closet. What do you think of that? I might let you in my secret closet. <laughs> well, first you'll have to take me for a drive in that car. That sounds like fun too. Well, okay. you know, I asked too, because I'm, I've been in, into cars. Like it's always been my dream to have a Camaro and I finally bought one this year and Joel was telling me, oh, you got to ask Eddie about his cars. He's got a cool car or something. <laughs> so do you like it? I like it a lot. Yeah. It's been a lot of fun and uh, I got a great deal too. It was, it was one of those things too, where I was crunching the numbers and I was like, well, literally I can have like a Honda Civic or I can have this. And I talked to my wife and she gave me the go ahead and the car seat fit in the back. So there we go. <laughs> wow. That's great. Just got to be careful. Oh yeah. No, it's a, it's a tough car in the winter here cause it gets so damn cold, but uh, yeah. Thank you, Sean. That was terrific. We will meet someday again. We will until then. Enjoy the rest of the summer and stay safe. You too. All the best. Thank you so much for listening to the Clarinet Podcast. If you'd like to send me a guest suggestion, have some feedback, or just want to say hi, you can contact me directly at feedback at clarinet.com. I love hearing from listeners all over the world, and people have contacted me from as far away as I Hawaii, Russia, all over the place. So it's really interesting to hear from all of you out there. You can also join the Clarinet community on Facebook to interact with other listeners. 
If you are enjoying the show, you got this far all the way to the end and you find yourself wishing there was just a little more, you'll be happy to know that normally, not for today's episode unfortunately, but normally there is an extended version available starting at just $1 a month at clarneat.com. Just click on the members section and you can subscribe or unsubscribe at any time and uh, it'll give you unlimited access to all of the previous ad-free and extended episodes. Now this can be a, a higher donation and we have some people donating more than $10 a month and I'd like to just thank them here now. We've got Robert W, Glenn K, David S, William L, Miguel D, Debbie A, Patty S, Josh N, and Karen D. So thank you so much to all of you for really helping to support the podcast on an ongoing basis. I just want to give a little aside here that the support does go a long way. In the past, I've even crowdfunded some trips, for example, down to Clarinet Fest in Orlando in 2017, I believe it was. And I just want to say that that is where this conversation with Eddie first got started. So sometimes things take a while to happen, right? So, but I actually met Eddie down there and we've been sort of in conversation um, recently again, but the fact that we'd already met in person was a huge advantage as far as actually getting to have this podcast happen. So your support of the show really does help me reach fantastic new guests and take the show fantastic new places. So thank you so much for, for all of your support. Of course, also thank you to our sponsors. We've got Legere Reeds. And as I said at the beginning, they have the new Legere European Signature Bass Clarinet Reed coming out. Now, if you have been playing any synthetic reed, you'll probably have tried the European Signature for clarinet already. It's a fantastic reed, very consistent and offers a really amazing uh, sound quality, but you'll have to be the judge for yourself on that one, of course. Um, but I think that you'll find this to be a very compelling option. I know that I I can't wait to try it. And uh, you can check it out at their website. I believe it launches October 5th, www.legere.com. That's L-E-G-E-R-E.com. Of course, we also have Bakun Musical Services, and now you can save 10% on your barrel, bell, mouthpiece, or actually clarinet purchase as well. All you have to do is enter code CLARINET at checkout at bakunmusical.com. Of course, if you're a Canadian customer, don't forget they also have the new Canadian store in effect. And if you live up here in the great cold north, you'll know that it's a really nice thing to be able to pay in our own local currency and avoid all those transaction fees and things like that. So check it out, bakunmusical.com, and do not forget to use code CLARINET with your purchase to save 10%. And last but not least, we have Encoda, which is kind of like Netflix or Spotify, but for sheet music. You can check it out and get a free trial at Encoda.com. That's N-K-O-D-A dot com. Thank you so much again for listening to the show today, and I look forward to seeing you next time on Clarinet, the show for clarinetists. Hope you have a great day, and I look forward to seeing you next time on the show for an episode with Miles DeCastro, who is a woodwind repair technician and shared some really fantastic advice.